You know, uh, John Parmer, always uh, with a twinkle in his eye, sent me an email earlier this week and said, uh, do you think we should cancel church Sunday because of the, uh, the prediction for the rapture? <laughs> I said, no, we'll keep the service scheduled because if the rapture doesn't come off, we'll, we'll have church as usual. If the rapture does, this place will be full of first-time attenders. <laughs> And they can hold their own prayer meeting. You know, uh, what I don't like about those predictions, and they've been occurring for centuries, whether you knew that or not, but what I don't like about those predictions is that I think they diminish the credibility of the gospel. And uh, there, are, there are people out there, misguided people out there, who uh, will say, uh, on the basis of the fact that there was no rapture, they'll say, well, the whole thing is foolishness. And, uh, and Satan will use that as a tactic to, to place a barrier, uh, to uh, raise a, an obstacle to faith in the minds of some people. And I think that's why that's so unfortunate. And, and it's so unnecessary. Jesus was clear in Matthew 24, 36. He said, no one will know the day or the hour. In fact, in the Matthew and Mark passages, you see that Jesus said, I don't know myself. The Father in heaven is the only one who knows. Now, maybe Jesus knows now. I don't know. But 2,000 years ago when he said that, he, he said, I don't know myself. Only the Father in heaven knows the day and the hour when that will happen. And the, the larger point that Jesus was making, folks, was not um, try to figure it out like a murder mystery so that you can uh, get ready at the last moment and kind of slide in under the tag so that God can say, safe. Not that. What Jesus' point was, was live ready every day. Live in a way uh, that you will not be surprised or chagrined when Jesus shows up again to take you back to heaven with him. Whether that's in the rapture or, or whether, it's a, uh, whether you reach heaven before that. Live ready every day. One man who did that was Joshua in the Old Testament. Great example of a guy who knew what he believed about God and, and lived it out. And that's where we're going to be looking today is Joshua 6 in the Old Testament. I realize that some of you may not be uh, used to navigating around in the Old Testament. I think that, would someone uh, find the page in the Pew Bible? I think it's 168, is that right? One, 164. 164 in the Pew Bible if you're using one of those. Uh, if you have your own Bible, you're on your own. But it's uh, uh, Joshua 6 is the passage we want to get to while I'm talking here. And two principles in particular that we're going to look, about, uh, look at today. The first one you're very familiar with because Mark mentions it all the time. And that is what you believe about God determines what you will do. What you believe about God determines what you will do. And that is that, uh, in other words, what we believe about, God, about who God is and what he has promised to do will determine how we live our lives. It will determine what our priorities are. Uh, what we do with our time, what we do with our money, what kinds of activities we engage in. It, what we believe about God and uh, what he's promised us will, will uh, allow us to order our lives ar around him as a, as a priority, as a guiding force, if you will. Principle number two, and, and this is the one we haven't talked much about, but principle number two, equally true. What you believe about God determines what he can do through you. Did you get that? 
What you believe about God determines what he can do through you. That is that uh, the degree to which God can demonstrate his power in your life and mine and in the lives of the people around us that we're praying for depends on the level, depends in part on the level of our faith and trust in him. This should not be a surprise. Uh, Jesus made this point many times. I talked with a friend recently who said to me, you know, I, I, just, haven't, uh, I, I just haven't seen uh, many people get healed when, uh, in response to prayer. It just doesn't happen very often, she said. And I said, you know, I had to stop her and say, you know what, wait a minute, in my experience, it seems to happen all the time. It seems to happen more often than not. When, when we uh, go to God in prayer, we ask in faith according to his promise, and uh, somebody gets well, and we say, praise God. Uh, God acted there and, and, uh, and healed that particular person. I, I said, in, in my experience, it happens quite a bit, actually, uh, that, that God answers that kind of prayer. You know, Jesus repeatedly chided his disciples. Remember some of those instances? He chided his disciples for their weakness of, of their faith. And he cited it for the reason that God was unable to demonstrate his power through them under some circumstances, like the, uh, the, the man with the, the demon possession, for example. And uh, in other occasions, he said, your faith is so weak, or you, you have no faith. That, that's why you couldn't do what you're trying to do. And, and so the, the point is that uh, I think the, that weak faith, and sometimes it's downright unbelief, folks, that uh, is one of the primary reasons why we don't see more of God's power demonstrated in our own lives and, and in the lives of, of those around us in response to, to prayer. And, and the good news here is that God can grow our faith. And God can, can strengthen our faith, and so, it's more, so he can demonstrate more of his power uh, through us as we learn to depend on him. Joshua was a guy who depended on God, and when God gave him a promise, he took it to the bank. Now let me set the stage historically for where we are uh, prior to Joshua 6. If you remember, uh, Mark talked extensively about Joseph at one point, and if you were here for that, uh, the nation of Israel, at least Jacob and his sons, came to Egypt at one point, didn't they? Because Joseph was in authority there. They came during a famine, and uh, they lived there for 400 years. And, and after Joseph's time, there was a pharaoh there who actually put them in bondage, in, in captivity. And they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And uh, ultimately, Moses led the people out. You may be familiar with the story, Ten Plagues. Pharaoh said, uh, it wasn't really Charlton Heston, it was Moses who said, let my people go. The teenagers are looking around like, huh, who's Charlton Heston? <laughs> um, it was Moses that said, let my people go, and Joshua was there for all that. He was a slave in Egypt, and then he watched God deliver the children of Israel through those ten plagues. The Pharaoh let him go. The Egyptian army chased him into the Red Sea, and uh, Moses held out his rod. The Red Sea stood up like two walls, and the, the, uh, the nation of Israel passed through on dry ground, the Scripture tells us, and then God brought the, the, the sea crashing down on the Egyptian army that was chasing them. And, um, and brought an end to them all. Well, uh, Moses led people then to the, the promised land, to Canaan that God had promised Abraham hundreds of years before. And he sent out 12 spies into Canaan, into the promised land, to, 
to reconnoiter or to recon, as we say. And uh, 10 of the spies came back with unfavorable reports. He, he, they said, these, these people are huge. He said, they make us, they said, they make us look like grasshoppers. And uh, they said, the fortified cities have walls that go up to the sky. We can't, we can't beat these guys. Uh, they're, they're too much for us. And, and so they doubted. And uh, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, on the other hand, listen, with God's help, we can kick their butts. Well, that's not exactly what they said, but I'm paraphrasing a little bit. What, what they said was that uh, with God's help, we can, we can uh, conquer this land and, and we can take these people. Well, the people believed the ten with the unfavorable report, as you know, and uh, God was so displeased with their lack of faith, with their unbelief, that he sentenced them to another 40 laps around the wilderness. 40 more years in the wilderness. And God did that so that whole generation that did not believe would die off. The only two who were left of that time were Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who had believed. And after 40 years, God brought them around back again to the border with the promised land. He commissioned Joshua as the new leader. He showed Moses the promised land from a mountain. Moses saw it but never got a chance to enter into it. Then Moses died and Joshua became the new leader of the nation of Israel. Now they stood on the border, looking across into the promised land, and that's where we pick up the story in, uh, in Joshua 6. Promises here are a, a huge element of this story. And uh, what I want you to see is the promises that God made to Joshua in, in the, uh, Joshua 1, verses uh, 1 through 9. It's going to be on the screen. You can flip back to it in your scripture as well if you'd like. Uh, but I'm going to begin with, with uh, Joshua 1, verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of God, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and be very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written there in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, as if Joshua needed to hear it again. Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's look specifically at the promises that, uh, that he's given Joshua here. There are three. First of all, I have given you and the nation of Israel this land. It's yours. Secondly, no man will, able, will be able to stand before you. No man will be able to stand before you. In other words, you will defeat everyone that you fight. 
What a, what a promise. No one in combat will be able to stand against you. What confidence that would, would give Joshua. And then uh, finally, I will never for, fail you or forsake you wherever you go. I will never fail or forsake you wherever you go. Now let's look at some conditions. Did you, uh, did you know that uh, most of the promises of God have conditions attached to them? Sometimes we want what we're promised, but we, we don't want to uh, acknowledge that, that uh, we've got to live up to the conditions as well. well. Well, God included some conditions in the promises to Joshua. First of all, he says, uh, one condition is you, you need to be strong and courageous. In other words, act boldly and with confidence. That's a command. It's not a feeling. It's a command. He said, act boldly and with confidence. Did you know that God gives us the same command? He gives us the same promise that Joshua had here in 2 Timothy 1.7, where Paul says to Timothy, listen up. God didn't give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. Self-discipline in another translation. Um, another translation, instead of power, says boldness. God gave us a spirit of uh, boldness, of love, and of self-control. So he told Joshua to be strong and courageous. He said, uh, he said another condition is, you've got to obey in everything I've told you to do. There's got to be obedience in your life. I want to see a pattern of obedience, and then I will act in this way. I will be with you all the time. No man will stand against you. All the rest of it will be true if, if you act in obedience. And sometimes, folks, I, th- I think we lose sight of the fact that uh, we, want the, we want whatever God is promising us. But if there is a pattern of, of disobedience in our lives, uh, God will not honor our prayers. He will not answer our prayers if, if we're consistently disobedient. If there's something that he's brought to our attention, we're not dealing with it in our lives, and we continue in disobedience, God will not uh, respond uh, positively uh, to that, and our, our, we'll suffer in terms of answered prayer. Uh, when we know God uh, better, we trust him more, and our prayers get answered more, and uh, God's power is demonstrated through us. Uh, the, the third... The third um, condition is, uh, he said, meditate on my word to integrate it into your life so that you'll be prosperous and successful. Meditate on my word, integrate it into your life so that you will do it, and then you'll be prosperous and and successful. Uh, These promises aren't just for Joshua. The Bible is full of promises that that God has given us as well. Would you flip, we're going to take a little side trip here just a second. Would you flip to Philippians 4, 6, and 7? Philippians 4, 6, and 7. This is another promise that should be burned in your heart and, uh, and should be boilerplate for us as believers. And listen closely because I'm going to ask you what's promised and I'm going to ask you what are the conditions for the fulfillment of that promise. Here, here's the scripture. Verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a promise you can use in any difficult situation you encounter. A difficult relationship, a setback at work, a family issue that's come up that you're discouraged about. This is a promise you can use in in any of those situations. What does God promise us? As a result, 
What's the outcome that God is promising us here? Peace, right? Yeah, in fact, he says it's, it's going to be the peace of God which surpasses all human comprehension. You won't be able to understand it, but you're going to have peace in the most difficult of times. Now, what are the conditions for the fulfillment of that promise? What do we have to do in order to get that kind of peace? First of all, you have to pray. A lot of us, folks, don't have peace because we don't give it to God. We don't pray, and so we don't have peace. It's as simple as that. What else? Thanksgiving. Thank you very much. That's one we miss. That's one we often miss. In the most difficult of circumstances, if we will give thanks to God for where he's put us at that that particular point in time, and if we will turn that situation over to him, he will give us his peace. That's an example of how you and I can claim a promise that will make a difference in our lives from day to day. And, and that prayer is the conduit by which God gives us peace. It's not just to ask him for things. He's not a bellhop. It's not just to ask him for things that we need. It is for that. But it is also so, so God can use that prayer as a conduit to give us his peace. Okay, back to Joshua. Three things that Joshua believed about God. First of all, Joshua believed that God was all-powerful. And another word for that is omnipotent, all-powerful. He saw God, uh, he was a slave in Egypt. He saw Israel delivered from Egypt through all uh, God's supernatural signs and wonders. He saw the Red Sea parted, as we talked about. The Egyptian army drowned. And then Joshua was Moses' right-hand man. For 40 years as they wandered around in the wilderness, he saw God provide for his people. So uh, Joshua knew that God could do the miraculous. It's, uh, Joshua knew that well, and, and God didn't believe that, or Joshua didn't believe that anything was impossible for God. You know, there's a neat, uh, there's, a, there's a real neat passage in uh, Luke 137. It's not in your notes, but Luke 137, the angel Gabriel comes to the Virgin Mary. She was probably a, a teenage girl. He's explaining to her how the virgin birth is going to happen. And uh, she says, well, how can all this be? You can see her saying, how can all this be? I mean, she's startled. And it's like, this huge angel leans over and he says to her, uh, listen, listen. He says, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Well, Joshua understood that, that, uh, that God is all-powerful. Joshua believed that uh, God is faithful and that he always keeps his promises. He, he knew about the promise to Abraham hundreds of years before that God was going to make of Abraham a great nation more descendants than the sands of the seashore or the stars in the sky, God said, and that he would bring them to a land that he had promised them, the, the promised land, that is Canaan. So that was, that was uh, the promise that Joshua was well aware of, and Joshua uh, believed that God would always be with them. Uh, God had promised Joshua that explicitly in the verse we just read. In uh, verse 9, he, he said, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua was about to get some more evidence of that presence of God in his life in, uh, uh, near Jericho. He was out scouting. You, we read in chapter 5 that he was out scouting the city of Jericho. He was doing his reconnaissance. And as I mentioned, Jericho was a uh, walled city. The archaeologists tell us that it was probably about eight acres in size and uh, surrounded by two parallel walls about 15 feet apart. 
very high walls. The original spies had said they, the walls extend up to the sky. Obviously, that was an exaggeration, but their point was that the, the uh, cities were so heavily fortified that, that in, the, in that day, before cruise missiles and laser-guided bombs, in that day, uh, these, these cities were virtually impregnable uh, to, a, to a warrior. So uh, Joshua was out doing some scouting around, uh, looking to see if he could identify some vulnerabilities, perhaps, and to try to sense what God was telling him in terms of strategy. He was an accomplished general and a, and a tactician. He knew about warfare. And, uh, and his job was to try to figure out a way to, uh, to take Jericho. You know, I, I've had a little experience myself trying to get into buildings where people didn't want me in. A, a number of years ago, I, one of my careers was with the state police. And one of the, I retired back in 2000, but one of the jobs I had with the state police was leading SWAT teams. And, and as you might expect, there were occasions when people didn't want us in buildings but we felt strongly that we wanted to be in. <laughs> so some, these were very rude people in most cases. And, and uh, we had a variety of strategies and James Bond, uh, gee whiz kinds of gadgets to get into places. But um, my, and, and most of them involved some kind of a diversion that we would stage at one end of a place and then we'd break in the other end, you know. And we'd use a combination of things like, you know, hydraulic jacks and battering rams and that together with brute force would get you into most places. But, but occasionally... Uh, you'd have to do something else. And, and, and one of those techniques that was my personal favorite was something we called instant door. You, you guys like this already, don't you? Instant door. Trust me, there's a spiritual application here down the road. Uh, some of the guys in, uh, on my team were Vietnam-era explosives guys, EOD people. And uh, they knew about explosives. And, and they came up with a scheme. They said, uh, what they did was use a debt cord, or a detonator cord, they called it. It looks like an electrical cable, except it's explosive. And uh, they would arrange it with duct tape around a, a big refrigerator-sized piece of cardboard, and uh, you could run up and slap that on the side of a frame house, get away from it, detonate it, and it would make a refrigerator-sized hole in the size of a frame house. Now, we never used that in a real operation, um, but I, we used it in practice. And I, I always thought uh, one of the neatest things about that was some of the interesting conversations that it, it would generate with, with people once you went in that house. Like, sorry to burst in on you like this, <laughs> but you have someone who belongs to us. <clears throat> or, I'm sorry, what did you say? No, the, uh, I'm sorry, the, the cheeseburger for hostages trade that, that, that is no longer available. That was a limited time offer, you see, and your, your time is up. Well, well, Joshua had a similar kind of problem. How is he going to get into, into Jericho? He met an interesting person here, a, a mysterious soldier that wasn't supposed to be out there. In, uh, in Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15, we read about him. A someone who arrived to take charge of the battle. He, he says, uh, Joshua 5, 13 through 15 says, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, they lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And as Joshua went to him and, and said to him, Are you for us 
or for our adversaries. He said, No, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host, that is, captain of the army of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Well, who was this soldier with his sword drawn standing out there uh, outside Jericho that just appeared out of nowhere? Well, some Bible scholars say that uh, that, that was Michael, uh, the archangel, the most powerful created being in God's legions of angels. And uh, certainly God could have sent Michael in this situation. But I, I believe that it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself uh, that appeared at that time in order to take charge of the battle. And this is, this is why. Uh, first of all, you notice that Joshua fell down and, and worshipped uh, this soldier, this captain, as he called himself. And, uh, and he was not prevented from doing so. And many times, uh, if, if a human being fell down to worship an angel, an angel would say, get back up on your feet, as, as happened in Revelation. Remember when uh, John went to worship the angel in Revelation? The angel said, on your feet, I'm a servant of God just like you are. You don't worship me, worship God. That didn't happen here. Uh, this captain allowed Joshua to fall down on his face and, and worship him. And the second thing was that he told Joshua to take off his sandals. He said, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. Well, the only thing that makes ground holy is the presence of God. And uh, what, what happened here, folks, was that Jesus Christ himself showed up as the captain of the Lord's army in human form to give Joshua his marching orders. The third reason is that it's very consistent with the account of Jesus as captain of the Lord's army that we see in Revelation 19. We won't read that at length, but you can look at it later, where Jesus comes back riding on a white horse at the end of time, leading uh, the armies of heaven on white horses as well in Revelation. He was, he's the, the captain of the Lord's army at that time. I think he was the captain of the Lord's army here as well. And his presence here indicates the significance of this battle. And the significant, the spiritual significance. You see, there's spiritual warfare that's occurring. It isn't just a physical battle where some people are going to take a city. There's a spiritual warfare here where Satan is going to be beaten back at this city and, and then in, uh, in Canaan in general in the other victories that God has planned for them. So what do we learn about the attributes of God from this encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, that God's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. We all, we all know that, and we're going to see it demonstrated later in this story that he's omniscient, he, he's all-knowing. He knows everything from the beginning to the end and knows how the, uh, knows how the story ends, uh, as it were. And that's also demonstrated in the wisdom of his plans. And, and finally, that he is, here's another attribute of God. He's omnipotent, he's omniscient. The third attribute of God is he's omnipresent. Uh, he's present anywhere he wants to be simultaneously in space and time. We understand the space thing. We understand that God can be over there and God can be over here at the same time. We get that. But what we don't get very often is the fact that uh, God transcends time. So he's also omnipresent across time, you see? So Jesus could be here. At the same time, he could be leading the charge in Revelation 19. We think about time in, in sequence, chronologically. God doesn't think about time like that. That's why the psalmist says, uh, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. It's all the same to God. It's all playing out before him simultaneously at once 
And uh, it's not just that he knows what's going to happen, folks. He's already there. The psalmist says in uh, Psalm 37, I'm sorry, 39.4, he says, show me my life's end and the number of my days. Show me my life's end. He asked God for that. Show me my life's end and the number of my days. It's not that God knows what's going to happen. It's not just that God knows what's going to happen there. God's already there at the end of his days. God knows how each one of our lives will end and on what day it will happen. And folks, he doesn't just know that. He's already there waiting for you. He's waiting for you there because he exists across time. He's omnipresent across time, you see. Three attributes of God. That's a mind-bender, isn't it? The Lord had some marching orders for Joshua in Joshua 6, and he outlined an unusual strategy, didn't he? Uh, we're going to read about it here in, uh, in uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Would you uh, look at those verses with me? Chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. He gives Joshua the, the order of battle. He says this is how it will happen. Suddenly Joshua was second in command, not first in command. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its valiant warriors. This is how you're going to do it. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark, then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. So Joshua passed along those instructions to his people. Let me ask you this. Why why did God do it that way? Have you ever thought about that? This strategy, uh, do you suppose this, this strategy is a strategy that an experienced general and tactician would pick to take this city? Not hardly, right? And you can imagine the, the, uh, the pre-operation briefing that Joshua goes to with his men. He says, fellas, the, uh, the Lord's told me how we're going to take this city and this is how we're going to do it. We're going to march around it. We're going to blow trumpets, and then on the seventh day, we're going to do that seven times, and we're going to blow the horn. And uh, all the people will shout, and the walls will come down. <laughs> now, uh, in, our, in our day, that might generate some raised eyebrows. I, I think in Joshua's day, they'd already seen it God act powerfully for them many times. And, and I think they were behind Joshua 100%. And, and so I think they were signed up for whatever God told Joshua to do. Uh, but it is not standard uh, tactical practice to march around buildings that you're going to try to take or, or cities that you're going to try to take. So my point is that this was, uh, from a human perspective, this was a foolish strategy, a foolish, a foolish tactic from a human perspective. But that's exactly why God did it. It's intended to appear foolish at a human level so when it happens, when the walls go down, what does everybody say? God did it, exactly. It, it's intended to happen in a way that people can only conclude, God did that, God did that. 
And, and that's ex- exactly what happened. God chooses to use things that, are, that appear foolish and weak on a human level in all kinds of circumstances so that his glory will be, will be evidenced there. In 1 Corinthians 1.27, for example, Paul tells us that explicitly. He says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to, to shame the strong. And he delights in working in ways that leave no doubt that he was responsible for the outcome. That's what he told Paul, wasn't it? Remember where Paul was uh, concerned about a physical disability where he, he had, he prayed to God three times, God, would you please take this away because it's getting in my way and you know, I could do so much better if, if you just take this thing away, whatever it was. We don't know exactly what it was. God said to him, he, played, he prayed three times. This was the Apostle Paul. He prayed three times and God said, no, no, no. I'm going to leave you with that. And what he said to Paul was this. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see? God delights in working through the weak and the foolish because then his power is evidenced. And, and we must never forget, when we ask for a healing or some other act of God, that what God intends to bring out of that is not just the healing per se, but what he intends to do is lift up his name and glorify his name so that other people will say, look what God did, and they'll be drawn to him for eternity. That's, that's what God's trying to accomplish in those things. That's why Jesus said in some cases, uh, somebody died and he raised them back to life. Or somebody was blind. Remember when his disciples said, who sinned, this man or his, or his parents, you know, the, blind, the blind man? He said, it's not about that. Nobody sinned. It's so the glory of God can be demonstrated here. That, that's what God's doing in these kinds of things. And that was the case here as well. God wanted to accomplish the victory over Jericho in an unconventional way that left no doubt who was responsible. And notice that, that when God works like this, it, uh, it also becomes a test of our faith. Sometimes God will ask us to do some things that just don't seem to make any sense, right? We can't see the end. They just don't seem to make any sense. And uh, it becomes a test of our faith. And certainly it was for Joshua in this case too. And for his men who were going to take that city, marching around it. I, you know, they may have gotten some hoots and hollers from the wall of that city uh, as, they were, as they were marching around it. But because Joshua believed that God was all-powerful and that uh, he would do what he said he would do, he carried out God's instructions to the letter. And let's read, in, let's read about how that uh, played out in a couple short sections from Joshua 6. First of all, uh, Joshua 6, uh, starting at verse 12. Would you read along with me? It'll be on the screen as well. Joshua rose up early in the morning, verse 12, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets, and the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. Then on the seventh day they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Then let's jump down to verse 20 where we see what the results were. 
Verse 20, so the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets, and when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a, a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house, this is new, we'll come back to this, go into the harlot's house, and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you've sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had Joshua spared, and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds the city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up his gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Now, a couple things that uh, we should understand about this. I don't know why the curse was put on it in, in verse 26, but I know what happened. Several hundred years later, uh, seven or eight hundred years later, actually, uh, a man named Hiel went to rebuild the city of Jericho. And the, uh, it's recorded in 1 Kings 16.34. When he laid the foundation, he lost his oldest son. When he set the gates, he lost his youngest. That was a seven or eight hundred year old curse that Joshua put on uh, Jericho, on the rebuilding of Jericho, and, and God carried it out according to Joshua's word. Here's a very common question and something we need to understand uh, about Canaan. Why did God uh, order his people to kill everything that breathes? Doesn't that seem unnecessarily brutal? To our, to our way of thinking. It, it always did to me. But we need to understand some things that, that will, uh, will, will help us see why he did what he did. Uh, the, the rules of engagement were laid out prior to this time in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 18. It'll be up on the screen. You don't have to turn to it. Uh, God laid out for Moses what the rules of engagement would be when his people, uh, during the conquest of, of Canaan, he says this. This is God's order to the people. Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave anything alive that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. This is the reason. This is one reason. So that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. In other words, he said one reason is I, I'm going to have you kill all these people so that uh, they don't contaminate you because of their disobedience. Some of the things that God found uh, detestable um, were, uh, you have to keep in mind that the gods that these people served in Canaan were fronts for demonic forces. 
and that some of the things that uh, these demons had these people do were not just the usual garden variety immorality, uh, but they were in uh, worship and in union with demonic forces, the occult, in other words. And the worst thing, the thing that God called detestable was the fact that they were sacrificing their, their own children in the fire. God will always act to protect children. And uh, in, in this case, one of the reasons why he wanted to wipe them out was because he found that detestable. Also, God's patience with the, uh, the question, why didn't he give them time to repent? Well, he did, actually. He told Abraham way back, 400 years ago or so, he, he said, uh, I'm going to, your people are going to be in bondage, your descendants are going to be in bondage in Egypt for 400 years until the iniquity of the Amorites, that is one of these groups of people, until the iniquity of the Amorites is full or is complete. In other words, uh, their sin their the level of sin, their level of disobedience is going to reach the point where I can no longer tolerate it. And part of God's mission for the nation of Israel at that time was to execute judgment on these people who had failed to repent and were engaged in that kind of detestable disobedience. He said, I, I want you to wipe them out. That's part of what's going to happen here. It's not just giving you the land, but I, I want you to punish people who are engaged in that kind of behavior. And, and also we need to recognize the same reason why the Lord Jesus Christ was there to direct the battle uh, was that it's a larger spiritual warfare that was occurring here. It's not just taking cities and taking property. It, there, there was a spiritual warfare here where God was setting the stage for the execution of his final plan and Satan was pushing back with everything he had. And, and so God uh, uh, had to push back that resistance from Satan. And that's still occurring today. There is a spiritual warfare that was... Uh, uh, overarching this conflict and, and, is, and continues today. Satan is still battling uh, God um, on a spiritual level and we're engaged in that battle. We'll talk more about that. There's some archaeological evidence for the, for the destruction of Canaan that supports the biblical account. Dr. Bryant Wood is, is one of the leading archaeological authorities on the city of Jericho. And uh, he cited three examples, three digs that have gone on um, for, for some length of time over the past 90 years. He said all three of those digs provide abundant evidence that supports the biblical account of, of what happened. And in particular, there was a British archaeologist named Dr. Kathleen Kenyon in the 50s that uh, excavated Jericho extensively and, and found a large quantity of mud bricks in that uh, the positioning of those bricks indicated that almost the entire city wall had collapsed. As if, as if by an earthquake. Now, we don't know that God used an earthquake. Certainly, he could have, uh, but he, he may have used other means. He, he could have had the angel Michael topple the walls. I, I don't know. But um, for whatever reason, if it was an earthquake, it was a very unusual earthquake because it, it toppled the entire city wall except for one small section where there was a house on top of that, on top of that section. Guess whose house that was? Yeah, it was Rahab's. Rahab's house. That, that's interesting. It syncs up with the Bible account here, the scripture account in Joshua 2.15. It, it says, it, it makes specific mention of a house belonging to someone named Rahab the harlot, which was apparently uh, located uh, on the wall of Jericho. And here's the passage, Joshua 2.15. Then she let them down by a rope, that is the spies, let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall so that she was living on a wall. God wants us to know that she was living on a wall. He says it twice here. 
So you have Rahab the harlot. Now, now that's a, a new person in this story that, that we haven't talked about yet, but we will in just a moment. There, there are two, two extreme stories of faith in, uh, in Joshua 6. One is Joshua himself, the great man of God, the great warrior of God that believed God unconditionally. And, and at the other extreme, there was a woman of the street, the harlot, the prostitute, uh, that was, an, was part of the, the, uh, the Canaanites that were about to be destroyed. And, uh, and she came to faith. What, what we learn is that in Joshua 2, Joshua sent two spies into the city. And uh, these young men went to the, the home of Rahab the harlot and uh, were hiding there. And the king of Jericho got word that they were there. And so he sent people to Rahab's house and, and said, give up these uh, people that came to your house. We know that they're there. We know that they're Israelis. We want you to give them up to us. She had a, a crisis of faith at that moment. She had to decide what was she going to do. What did she, that was the moment, folks, where she had to decide, what do I believe about God? What do I believe about God? And uh, she told the king's men, you know, yeah, they were here, but they lit out the back door. I think they took off down the road. If you hurry, you can catch them. And, and so the king sent a search party out for these guys. And in the meantime, she hid them among the, the stalks of flax that were on her roof, the scripture says. And, and so she, she successfully safeguarded those, those two spies. So what did she believe about God? Well, in Joshua 2, 9 through 11, we're told that this, this was her testimony. This is what she knew about God. There was no scripture. There was no preacher. She didn't have the four spiritual laws. All, all she had was this. She said to the, the men, the, the spies, in verses 9 through 11, uh, she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when he came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. Here's her entire statement of faith. It's 15 words. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She acknowledged God as God. That's what she believed about God. That was the only thing she had to hang her faith on. Uh, that was the only thing that she knew about God. But on the basis of that, she had to make a decision. There was a crisis of faith. Do I protect the spies or do I give them up? She said, if God is God, then I'm going to protect his people. And she did that. And, and, uh, and the rest is history. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe two things. Number one, that he is. In other words, that he is the God of heaven and earth, and that he rewards those who diligently seek them. Those two things people need to understand when they, when they come to God. So what did she do as a result of what she believed about God? Well, she risked her own life. She, she protected the spies. And, uh, and she saved them. She risked her own life. She put her trust in the God she knew, and she, she saved the spies. What did God, here's the second question, what did God accomplish through Rahab as a result of her faith? Well, he saved her family. He saved her and her family from certain death at the hands of the Israeli army. 
And uh, in the story we read, she, uh, she used a scarlet rope. What she used uh, after the king's men left, and after dark probably, she, she threw a rope out, a scarlet rope out of, the, out of the window of her house. It says the spies descended that rope to the ground and they got away safely. The spies said, when we come back, when the army comes back, make sure you hang that scarlet rope out of your window because that's what will save you. Our soldiers will see that scarlet rope and we won't attack this house. Everybody that's in this house will live. Everybody out on the street will die. So, so stay in the house and hang that scarlet rope out. So that scarlet rope became a symbol of salvation not only for those spies, but also for Rahab. It was the symbol of salvation for her when the Israeli army came back to kill and destroy. That her, her life was saved, her family's life was saved because of that scarlet rope. And, and it also points ahead to our salvation, the scarlet blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us, that, that saved us from a certain death as well. Let, let me tell you how far the grace, of, the grace of God reaches. Sometimes uh, we wonder, you know, sometimes there's someone who's so broken or who's been so, um, who's been so tangled up in sin, uh, they think sometimes that they can't, that God can't, God's grace can't reach them. Well, Rahab was uh, a prostitute. She, she was a harlot. And uh, God positioned her as if he wanted to demonstrate just how far his grace could reach. He positioned her not only to be saved and to save her family, but he positioned, positioned her as one of the ancestors of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Read the genealogy in, in Matthew 1. And, and Rahab is positioned there in the genealogy as one of the people who was the, uh, an ancestor of, of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so if God's grace can extend to Rahab, it, it can extend to you and, and me as well. You know, there are Jerichos in our own lives as well. And, and very often the New Testament is a picture of our own New Testament. The Old Testament is a picture of our New Testament spiritual experience. And in this case, it is as well. Uh, Jericho, the conquest of Jericho, is a picture of what we encounter in our own lives, the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. St. Paul tells us that in uh, Ephesians 6.12, he says, For our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12. So it's a spiritual warfare. And, and my question to you today is, what Jerichos stand between you? What fortresses, what strongholds stand between you and all of what God wants to accomplish in your life? What are the strongholds, the fortresses of uh, indifference or idolatry or unbelief or addiction or abuse in the lives of the people around us, some of whom we love, but whom God has brought into our lives, what are those strongholds that are keeping them from God? And what are those strongholds that God wants us to demolish in, uh, in prayer? To call down his power and have him remove those barriers so that that person can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this is where the instant door comes in. Folks, I'm going to suggest to you that 
that uh, prayer is your instant door. Prayer is your instant door to demolish that stronghold, to, to, to bring it down in, in your life or in that other person's life, that stronghold that is a barrier to, uh, to all that God uh, wants for you, all that, all that he uh, hopes to give us as, as our inheritance. And, and Paul is explicit about that. In, in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, he talks about how we do that. He says, although we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We're all engaged in spiritual warfare, but we don't, war, we don't wage that warfare with, with physical weapons. He, he says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations, that, that is, states of mind, that stand between people and God, delusions that Satan would put on them, and, and uh, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's how we engage in bringing down those strongholds. In prayer, asking God to destroy that delusion that's standing between that person and, uh, and the gospel. So friends, what you believe about God determines what you will do, how you will live. And what you believe about God also determines what he can do through you. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? I'm going to pray for you the prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossian church and ask for him the same, ask for you the, the same things from God that, that he did for the Colossian Christians. He says that, uh, Father, we, we ask that uh, we would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We ask that uh, you would do that so that we will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please you in all respects, that we would bear fruit in every good work, and that we would increase in the knowledge of God. We, we pray that you would strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to you as our Father, because you've qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And, and Lord, we pray that we would be that light, that you'd, you'd cause us, that you'd strengthen our faith, that you'd grow our trust in you, so that we can uh, uh, be in a better position for you to demonstrate your power in our lives, and that you would use us in this warfare to to bring down those strongholds that we see in our own lives and, and the lives of others around us. And that uh, in all of that, that your name would be glorified and lifted up. And that many would be drawn to you uh, because of what you're doing through us. And, and we ask these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.